All right, guys, it's Friday, literally the craziest slate of the year, and that's why I'm excited to pull back, talk macro, DFS strategy, GPP stuff with JM to win. You guys know him from one week season. I'm super excited to talk to him about his process, his strategy, how he approaches things. Let's do it. I suffer from a debilitating condition known as atropic shockitis. Peter's one of the greatest depositors I've ever seen. Trust the process. Let's go. Let's go. I got auto match with Levitan. This is bullshit. If I just go the other way in that 66, I win all the money. All the money. If I had 150 lineups, I'd win too. Process over results. Illuminati make a bitch go crazy. I don't know which one of these my baby. Bust out AP. Coach pop bullets in your head like KD. Bust it. Bust it. Bitch go bust it. And I had 10 pints with me in Russia. Hey, everyone. JM DeWin, thank you for joining us today. We tried to sync up, I think, sometime last year, but it was late in the year around the holidays. We were both uh, busy, so I'm, I'm glad we finally were able to do this. I know. Next year, we need to start uh, start working on this week one and then see what <laughs> comes together. Uh, I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to be on after the uh, the classic Pete Overzet intro, so uh, <laughs> it, should be, it should be a lot of fun today. Yeah, and just for people who who don't know, I know a lot of people are familiar uh, with your work over at One Work Season, uh, One Week Season. You also did uh, some shows with Levitan in the past. He would uh, lovingly call you a a, a hippie, uh, if I recall correctly. But how how did you kind of get transitioned from um, you know working with Roto Grinders, working with Adam, and then kind of launching your own site? And just for people who aren't familiar, what you're doing over there. The so I started in, in I, I came into DFS in 2014 and in MLB and I learned so much through hanging out in the forums uh, on Roto Grinders and then through that at, at I was at the live final in the Bahamas that year the one where CSU won the Millie and talking to Cam and Cal down there and you know they were like uh, so I do writing I did freelance writing before I started playing DFS and. Um, so they were like, hey, you know, why don't you write MLB next year? And I said, hey, I could write NFL as well. And so we kind of started out on that. And then by 2016, I was running the premium content platform at Roto-Grinder. So 2016, 2017, doing that and kind of working behind the scenes and running all the content. And just started realizing kind of the, the doing MLB is such a grind, right, to write content four or five days a week. And so I started realizing two things. One, just the, the freeing up of space to just focus on NFL um, but two, I'm very focused on, on training and strategy. And that's something that I'm very interested in because really DFS as, as you're aware, and as most of the listeners are aware, it's not a game of picking players. It's not a game of maximizing points, but it's a game of maximizing paths to first place. And there was a real lack of just like training focused content. So we do weekly research and game breakdowns and all that. But our main focus is on training people to become better DFS players. And so it was kind of a cool way to separate from what everybody else was doing and do something different. And so, yeah, we launched in 2018. Silva did the preseason content that year. Levitan and I continued to do our show on the uh, the Friday night show that year. And then they started ETR the next year. So um, we've been sans Silva and Levitan since then. And uh, it built up a really cool team over at, at OWS. Yeah, and you're kind of uh, obviously uh, a lot of your content b- behind the paywall. I feel like, you know, there's some of us who might be a little overexposed uh, in the DFS content industry. I do feel like you are one of uh, the more respected voices that we don't actually hear from a lot, just because I assume you're in your bunker providing value to your subs throughout the season. You don't you don't make the rounds too much. I'm, um, I'm incredibly bad at interneting. So <laughs> m- most of my Twitter follows are just from other people like Ray Bon or Silva or Levitan over the years tweeting stuff about me. And uh, I try to get on there from time to time. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a bubble builder, right? Like I don't read a lot of other content. And I think that there's some strong strategy edges there just in terms of there's a Peter Thiel quote where he said, uh, the best way to be contrarian is to think for yourself. And basically, if you're thinking for yourself and you're in a bubble and you're looking at things objectively and through a nuanced lens, then you end up seeing things that other people don't see. So a lot of times I used to do a Friday night show with Levitan and, and Jeff L. Hefe, who has number ball now. And we would hop on on Friday nights. And a lot of times Levitan would bring up players that were going to be popular that week. 
And I'd be like, oh, that guy's not on my radar. You know, and it wasn't that I was intentionally trying to be different so much as that just wasn't where I was going. And I think people focus, we're kind of getting into like the strategy already, right? But people focus yeah. too much on who they're fading as opposed to who they're playing. And so if you focus more on who you're playing and what your path to 200 plus points is, a lot of times you can find a very different path there than other people are finding. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a bubble player. We've got, um, we've got a few guys who are like heavy discord users on, on the team and um, Twitter users. And so I kind of let them handle all of that stuff. And I do a, uh, I do a weekly recap pod with Scott Barrett on, on Mondays. We're actually done for the season, but other than that, yeah, I'm kind of in, in the bunker and messing around in the bubble we're trying to find ways to like get me out there a little bit more, but every year we kind of think through that. And then it's like, we get to the season and it's like, this is my, this is my comfort zone. This is where I provide the best, the best content. For sure. You got to You got to lean in into your strengths. And like you said, you know, I, I think your, your reputation and the stuff you do, you know, speaks for itself and that's always going to be the best uh, marketing tool. You, you mentioned this stuff about sometimes maybe be being on different players than the consensus. And, you know, from what I can tell most of the time, those kind of early popular plays that's largely driven by projections and the players that pop as the best value. So I'm curious if you've noticed any patterns of like the type of plays that, you might that the field might be on because they project well, but you're just like, this is something I'm not entertaining. And, and or um, is there any examples that come to mind? If, if I don't know if that question made sense. Yeah. So there's two things. One, it's critical to examine the slate and the state of the slate before thinking about players. So we can take the last two weeks as an example. If anybody's listening to this down the road, this is week 15 of the 2021 season. And week 14, weeks 14 and 12 were actually like highly unpredictable weeks. And we could have seen that heading into the week, right? But most of the discussion on those weeks still centers around who are the best plays. And then in between that sandwich, in between that, we had the week 13, the Gardner Minshew, Sony Michelle week, where with like seven underpriced running backs in these kind of full-time roles due to injuries. And it was a highly predictable week. So on a week like week 13, what I'm looking to do is out predict the field, put together a better roster that does a better job of bringing in the best plays. Whereas weeks like 12 and 14, all I'm doing is waiting until late in the week to figure out what everybody else thinks the best play is and then do something different. Uh, and so for me, that's one side of it. And then step two is understanding where chalk is formed. So we talked about Levitan and, and Silva, obviously guys that you respect enormously, guys I respect enormously and, and we've both worked with. But um, one of the things that I think that people fail to recognize is most of the content providers in the DFS space, they play MLB, right? They're playing MLB through end of September and even playoffs in October, or they're playing NBA from October through the rest of the year. And they're grinding that every day and then providing NFL content. So they're not doing super deep dive research. So where do they get their research from? From projection systems, from Vegas lines, and from leaning on Levitan and Silva. What's interesting about that to me is Levitan's like the sharpest cash game player out there. And so what he's going to find is who are the sharpest plays if you're building for cash. But on a week where things are highly predictable, the sharpest plays for cash are also probably the sharpest plays for tournaments. And so you want to place a lot of those plays and maybe find a couple pivot points. But on an unpredictable week, the most predictable plays for cash are still pretty unpredictable. And so I think that a lot of times we see these guys at 15, 20% ownership because super sharp cash game players are like uh, Silva's breakdown, the matchups, and obviously a lot of focus on macro fantasy season long stuff. And these are the sharpest players, but people don't recognize that they're not substantially sharper than the number two, three, four players, that position. And that if you compared the sharpest player on week, 14 to the sharpest player on week 13 they the guy on week 14 wouldn't even be in consideration on like a on a week with a lot more available like sharp plays so i think that people don't recognize how fragile the chalk is sometimes so if you can kind of get a sense of the state of the slate and then what the chalk is and why it's chalk you have a better it's easier to not feel like you're just missing out on the the clear best play right and you can just play what you think is the best play or close to the best play or like last week, uh, I had I had Lamar Jackson on my main roster, and I was playing the game changer, 318 entries, and four rosters had Lamar Jackson, so that's one out of every 80 rosters, 
And we know that if we played out, well, I always say if we play out the slate 100 times, what would happen? And if we played out the slate 80 times, Lamar Jackson is going to have more than one blow-up game. And the Lamar Jackson, Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews stack with Donovan Peoples-Jones bring back is going to have more than one huge game out of every 80 games. And so finding those places where, yeah, Lamar Jackson wasn't the best play on paper last week, but he's way better than one in 80. And we can look through his game log throughout his career and every six, seven, eight games, nine games, even in tough matchups, he'll blow up. And so just getting on plays like that on an unpredictable week, whereas two weeks ago on a, on a predictable week, I'm just trying to find like, okay, let me do a better job than everybody else of, of out predicting them and getting to a good roster that way. So yeah, I think that that's kind of lost a lot in the week to week discussions around plays is what does this actual week look like and how can we take advantage? Yeah, for sure. And that's that's an interesting conversation and, and one, too, that I feel like as GPP players, we're constantly wrestling with that Lamar Jackson example is a great one where it's how many generally when you're getting off the chalk, you're sacrificing some raw projection points for far less ownership. And so that's always the the question, the push and pull, how much you know, projected points, are you willing to sacrifice to make sure it's a, you know, uh, you know, a 1% play versus, you know, the 40%. And do you, do you have a way to quantify that? Or is that just kind of for feel for feel for you? For me, it's feel, I don't use a projection system. I'll sometimes lean on a prediction system. We, we have a, we work with EV analytics who also powers the blitz and so I'll use our GPP ceiling tool or I'll use the blitz to kind of get a sense of what other people are seeing. But even like a lot of the MME players who write for OWS, there's an element of using projection systems specifically to see what everybody else is getting, right? Because if you can run the fantasy labs projections and the, the optimal lineup from there, or you can put in the blitz projections in the fantasy labs and run the optimal lineup from there, you can kind of see what the starting point is for a lot of people. For me, it's, I've never been a projections person. And so it's, it's more feel based and understanding. I think one of the things that I've, I've thought about this because when I started OWS, it was like, what is it that draws people to my content? And I think that one of the things that, that draws people to my content is I have a lot of focus on coaching as opposed to players, because coaches, every play, they have to make a decision and they have to decide how this game is going to play out, how they're going to attack and so on and so forth. So for me, understanding coaches helps me understand potential game flows and ways that things could play out. And so understanding coaches from they're looking at things from that perspective, I'm able to kind of see, okay, this game environment could go very different than people expect. And, and so it's less about projecting targets and projecting, uh, you know, median likelihood outcomes, but instead seeing what's the range, what's the ceiling. Um, I forget who you had on, on last week, but I remember he was talking about in GPPs, never play players who don't have ceiling. And that's something that people, I, I think, also kind of overlook is, especially in this, this conversation centered around who's the sharpest play. Well, it's not always the guy with the highest ceiling. Let's look at the way that DraftKings prices wide receivers. If you're in that like 4,200 and below range, it's either going to be a possession receiver who has no ceiling, the Amon Ross, St. Brown type guys, or it's going to be like the Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Jalen Guytons, who get four, five, six targets and might get two or three points, but can also get 22 to 25. So uh, I, yeah, there's, again, for me, it's field-based and it's a lot of, I mean, this is, God, this is my ninth year playing NFL DFS. So there's also accumulated knowledge that for me is kind of already there as far as understanding how to balance a roster and put it together. But, um, but yeah, it's field-based and it's, it's optimally getting a sense of over-unders tell a story, right? But What's the story of, a, of an over under of 47? It could be two totally different stories. Like, like last week's Bills and Bucks game at 53 and a half, it would have been very difficult for that game to finish far below 53 and a half. But also it would have been very difficult for that game to finish far above 53 and a half. So we could have had another week where maybe there's a 48 point total with a broad range of outcomes. Like the, um, the Chargers-Browns game earlier this year started at 48, dropped to 46 throughout the week the final score was 47 to 42. So there's a difference between a 40, 146 point total that's like, hey, it could be 42, it could be 50, and another 46 point total that could be 28 or could be 70, just because different teams interact in different ways. And so trying to find those asymmetric bets where I can take in a little extra risk for a lot of extra upside. 
yeah, so what are the things that when you look at a line, and, and this is a great week for trying to figure out because we have we had the best game of the week already uh, last night. All the totals have been dropping with the injuries. I mean, it's a pretty weak slate from a total perspective. What are the things that kind of gave you the confidence to be like, hey, this Bills-Bucks game has a pretty tight band, and yet I think another one could go 20 points or 15 points over the over-under? Well, so from that there, and there's obviously there's for me a lot of different factors I'm looking at, but from that particular game, uh, I'll go back to 2017 uh, when Cubs fan 333 won the Millie Maker. So uh, Cubs fan owns 20% of OWS, launched the site with me. He's one of the developers on the site. And he won the Millie Maker with a, a full on game stack of Seattle versus, or, or uh, Houston at Seattle. And that was back in 2017, right? People didn't play offenses at Seattle and it was a game that nobody was on and the total had gone up one or two points throughout the week and uh and he stacked that game like across 50 rosters with no DeAndre Hopkins and no Tyler no uh and no Doug Baldwin that's who was on the team then so there's a lot of Paul I Richardson, remember this game I remember Paul Richardson this game. and Will Fuller and Lamar uh, Miller Lott. yep and uh and basically it, it was if this game shoots out the way it happens is big plays, splash plays downfield. And so there are a lot of different factors that can lead to a shootout. But one of the biggest one is explosive plays because if a team scores, you know, two, three play drive, and then the other team gets the ball back. And let's say they also have ex- explosive players. You all of a sudden you fall into this rhythm that becomes this back and forth type of thing. So when you have two teams, incredible offenses like the Bills and Bucks, but also really smart coaching staffs and really smart defenses, everything that the Bucks are going to want to do in that game is keep the ball in front of them. And everything the Bills are going to want to do in that game is keep the ball in front of them, which is already the philosophy of both those defenses. But you put that together and you're going to have, I mean, I, I grew up in New England, so I've probably missed four or five Brady games in his career. I know Brady's not going to relentlessly attack the corners and the deep middle if the defense is giving him underneath looks, right? They're going to design route concepts that take the top off and open up things underneath. So then you end up with efficient drives that turn into points, but that's a lot, it's a lot harder to have like a 42 to 35 game or a 47 to 42 game. If both teams are taking the underneath throws and driving the field and high drive success rate, but that's not leading to just this explosive type of game environment. So in that game, it was interesting last week, right? All season people have talked about, Hey, the bucks stay aggressive deep into games, soft opponents. You don't have to worry about them, you know, taking their foot off the gas till deep into the fourth quarter. Well, DraftKings used to have dynamic pricing DraftKings, Chris Godwin's in a tough matchup. His price is going to go down five, six, 700 bucks to account for that and give you a tougher decision. Well, DraftKings doesn't do that anymore. So you had all these bucks players, facing the bills were without Tredavious white, but still facing the top defense in the league priced the same as they were priced in soft matchups where we knew that in soft matchups, they're still passing as much. They're still staying as aggressive. And so that type of setup for me, it's, it's, that was the only high total game on the slate. And that was the only tough decision point for me. It was like, really, can anything else pass this? But if, if a team is priced the same as they are in a soft matchup, but their volume is the same, I don't want to go there, especially if they're popular. And so yeah, thinking through those things about what can be the highest scoring game on the slate that nobody's on. Um, so flipping back over to that Browns and Ravens game, the three of Baker Mayfield's four highest pass attempt games in the last two years have come against the Ravens. You can't run on the Ravens. You can pass on the Ravens. And so you've got a Browns team that philosophically says, okay, we're facing the Ravens. We're going to go a little more pass heavy than normal. The Ravens can't really run the ball right now, so they're going more pass heavy. And so you say, yeah, this game over under of like 42, I think it was, it could end up there, but you could also have something happen where Donovan Peoples-Jones hits a big play, Hollywood hits a big play, and you end up with this back and forth type of game that all of a sudden just blows past everything else. So yeah, it's thinking creatively. I, I call it a practical imagination. So like not just using your imagination wildly, but saying what's practical, what can actually happen here? And then using your imagination to think through that, um, Imagination is obviously an overlooked element too for a lot of people is, is get out of the projection systems enough to think imaginatively through the games and sort of play the games out in your head and see, hey, what could happen in this game? Because uh, that, that makes a big difference as well. Yeah, and I get just the impression hearing you talk about it and how you're able to find your edge. It seems like it is a very time 
intensive process. And that's, I know uh, I interviewed chess is okay uh, on a show a month ago. And he had a quote about, you know, spending 80 hours a week uh, on his DFS prep and research. And people were kind of laughing at that saying like, this is a, a crazy use of time. You know, you could, you know, simplify your process, let the numbers do more of the heavy lifting. How do you think of that as far as like an ROI on your time investment into finding these micro edges? Uh, that's an awesome question. So I did a podcast with Blender HD right before the season kicked off. And if anybody's familiar with Blender HD, he basically says he could spend 30 minutes building all of his lineups because it's just taking projections and ownership projections and leveraging strong DFS theory to build good rosters. Um, for me, the time put in at this point is way less than it used to be just because a we've grown the site to where I'm not the one writing the game breakdowns anymore. So I can go in and read them and then use my time to research other things. And some of my time is watching games, which is enjoyable. And some of my time, a lot of my, my valuable time is reading beat writers in the off season, because then you're getting a better sense of the teams and the coaches and the inside out elements of each team. But, um, but yeah, so for me, it's like this projection systems and a lot of people might disagree with me, but projection systems in NFL are a lot more fragile than they are in NBA and MLB because it's harder to account for the coaching decisions made between each play. So what Blender says to me is, yeah, I might lose 5% ROI by not knowing all this stuff and by just using projections, but I save hours and hours and hours of time. I'm willing to sacrifice 5% ROI for all this time. For me, I guess there's two things. One, I disagree that you only gain like a 5% edge. I think that by really knowing this stuff, you gain a greater edge than that, especially in NFL, because we're not looking for median outcomes. And so I think if you understand this stuff, you can get a better sense of what the asymmetric outcomes are. And I'll, I mean, I'll also say, uh, I won't say which projection system, but there's, you know, one of the really sharp projection systems that I have a lot of faith and faith in and respect for. They've talked to me multiple times about, Hey, would you have time on Saturdays to talk to us? Because there's certain things we can't account for, whether it's injuries or coaching setups or whatever, just for us to bounce thoughts off you and say, Hey, what about this? What about this? And, and so I do think that there's a bigger edge than people give it credit for of just understanding these things. If we're talking about GPPs, where first place is all that matters. And if you can find that one game that has a much better shot than people realize of like one of my best weekends was 2016, 2015. And it was a, a Lions Bears game with Matthew Stafford. Calvin Johnson was on his last leg, Jay Cutler, Alshon Jeffrey. And the over under on the game was like 44 and Levitan and Hefe tried to talk me off of it on the Friday night show, but it was just like, well, I don't think this game's going to blow up. I just know that it has a much better shot than everybody realizes. And it was, I think it was a 37 to 31 game went into overtime and, um, you know, picked up a bunch of points throughout that entire game. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's, that's one side of it. And the other side of it too, from like an ROI standpoint is realistically, I also run OWS. So me putting in this extra time, I, I, you know, I don't have to think about what my ROI on this time would be if I didn't run OWS because I do. And so it's like this, all this extra time and this extra knowledge helps subscribers enough and helps our bottom line enough that I have this knowledge and information that, um, yeah. So maybe if you were like DFS player, you could say, well, what are the shortcuts like to put in a little bit less time? But, um, but yeah, for me, it's, you know, even just reading Roto World every day, reading through the athletic, you know, what I do on the athletic is I favorited every NFL team. And so just my feed is just every beat writer article that comes out each day and little things like that, watching games, um, understanding how to watch games. It's not that time intensive. I, I mean, I guess it is if you have a 40 hour a week job, but I probably put in 15, 20 hours on understanding the teams and, and players and games each week. Yeah. And that, you know, that concept that you were talking about the, the edges kind of within the current projections. I mean, it made me think of an example that I was 
mad that I didn't quite get on last week because I didn't have enough confidence from the projections. And that was the Seattle backfield. And I've liked Rashad Penny for a long time, drafted him in dynasty leagues, very excited about him. I know he's burned a lot of people with the injuries, but most projection systems were kind of splitting him and Alex Collins. And I even was, I remember talking to Leone and I said to him, I wish something popped in the projections more in this Seattle backfield because I could feel it and I wanted it, but I just didn't have the confidence. And I think if I would have had maybe a little bit more introspection on that setup, knowing that Alex Collins was falling out of favor with the team, had been banged up, they bring in Adrian Peterson in over him, giving him lots of carries, that maybe I would have found my way onto Rashad Penny. And I'm guessing that kind of input volatility where a projection system kind of just shrugs and splits the backfield. Is that where you're trying to find your edge in situations like that? Yeah, that's certainly one of the places is, you know, there's certain players who, if you miss them on a week, especially like first half of the season, we get rare instances later in the year, like the Rashad Penny thing. Like I noticed Rashad Penny was on Silva's game changer lineup. Yeah. Um, which means, you know, he's basically saying, let me, and, and I wouldn't call Evan like the most risk embracing person because he has so much knowledge. It's like, let me bet on my knowledge. And so there's a little bit of extra risk embracing there, but also just saying, Hey, like, let me understand the macro situation and what's the, what's the upside here if I'm right on this. But there's also, there's players who, if you miss them, you're going to have a really hard time winning that week. So like Kadarius, Tony, earlier this year when he had his 32 point game, Michael Carter, when he had his 30 something point game um, and understanding the roles and the setups and the, what, what I said about Kadarius Tony, that Kadarius Tony week was Jason Garrett for all his flaws. One of the only things he's ever been really good at is, is designing an offense to get the ball to his best players. He'll ignore ancillary pieces to get the ball to his best players. And they had so many injuries that week that it was like, what are you going, how are you going to call this game? The only logical way to call this game, if you're Jason Garrett, is just design ways to get the ball into Kadarius Tony's hands. All the talk is, oh, he's too raw. He's not ready yet. And so don't give him complicated routes to run, just bubble screens, uh, you know, fly sweeps, uh, let him pass the ball. And that was what we ended up seeing that week. Or if you're if you're thinking about, again, practical imagination, Mike White's under center against the Bengals who already filter targets to running backs and try, try to take away downfield passing. Well, if you're Mike White, what are you going to do? You're going to dump the ball off to the running back. Uh, or last year, one of the big examples from last year was Deontay Johnson when he was under 5K for so long and under 2 or 3% ownership because there's an element of pricing psychology, right? As soon as a player is priced at 6K, people are like, oh, he's worth 6K. But if that guy never been at that price tag, people feel, uh, they feel less comfortable taking on that play. I remember the year that OBJ and Mike Evans were rookies and their prices started getting up to like 5,800, 6,200. And people were like, ah, I can't pay that anymore because you know these guys are rookies and, and they've been priced in the 4K range. So understanding like, okay, but this is the role for this player. This is basically finding the players who are tougher for projection systems to project. So whether it's Rashad Penny or Michael Carter or Deontay Johnson last year, where you can say, and, and one of the things too, that is, again, like I say, like I said earlier, I always talk about if we played this slate a hundred times. So what I said on one of the Deontay Johnson weeks last year was regardless of what happens this week, Deontay Johnson's the best play on this slate. He could put up six points and he was still the best play on the slate because he's 4,200 and going to be under 3% owned. And this is his role. Like the Steelers, well, we've seen it now, right? Every week it's, it's 10 plus targets. Things are, the offense is designed around getting him the ball. But that was the case early last year when he kept getting hurt and he was still underpriced and nobody was playing him. And it's like, if you can spot those things, it's hard to win on the week when, you, when Deontay puts up 26 points at 4,200. And so if you can spot those things rather than just having to guess, then you gain an edge, you know, one little edge this week, one little edge this week, one little edge this week, but it all builds up over time. For sure. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And that idea of compounding kind of that edge as well and, and being able to kind of filter that through the same kind of situations that play out over and over. Um, I am curious about, I, I had uh, told the people in the Discord I was having you on, and there's a couple uh, Run the Sim subs that are also uh, one-week season subs, and a couple of them had mentioned that perhaps you've maybe changed your approach a little bit with how you think about ownership 
um, recently or more recently just with fields getting more sharper and that maybe previously you were okay just doing all your research, building your lineups and just being like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, out, outwork my opponents and put a, put together a better lineup. But how have you now been kind of factoring in these fields getting so much sharper ownership, getting more efficient and especially in this small field stuff. I mean, I want to get into kind of the, the leveling games with, with ownership, but I'm curious how you've kind of blended the game theory with, with your process. That is a great question. So yeah, several years ago, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't look at ownership projections ever, even, you know, the games that kick off, I would have never looked at them at any point. <laughs> And there was an element of, I can build these rosters better than everybody else. Back then, you typically needed like 180 points to win a tournament, 185 points. And so there was a year or two, you know, Osmo came along, Sahil Sud came along, was, was taking money away from Condia. And then Osmo came along and was taking away money from everybody else. And, and you start seeing these rosters that are putting up 200 plus points consistently. And so you start recognizing, okay, the game is evolving. I have to start doing things differently. And as the game starts evolving and people start getting better at understanding what's likely is to happen, well, then just betting on what's likely is to happen is less likely to get you to first place because now everybody's doing that. And so, yeah, for me, it was previously, if I were understanding the, the games and teams better than most people and betting on what's likely is to happen, I can move ahead of most people. There was one week, I mean, this was like 2014 or 2015. And I put in four rosters in the game changer and they were duplicates. It was two and two. And mm. I was so confident in the rosters that I double entered both and took down first, second, third, and fourth place. That would be impossible to do now. I would never even consider double entering two rosters. Now, of course, Game Changer wasn't single entry back then either. But the the idea back then was like, I can outpredict the field and feel so confident that I can double enter these two lineups. And now it's like, now my, my cash rate is lower because I take on more risks on these lineups to try to get to first place because first place is less easily attainable. It's not like, oh, I can build a roster that gets 100, 180, 185 points. I got to get to those 200, 210, 225 points. And so let me take on a little bit of extra risk. Let me outmaneuver the field in new ways. And so, yeah, the game itself is constantly evolving and the strategy around the game is constantly evolving. And you kind of have to keep abreast of that and adjust your own approach as a result. So I think that if you're still playing the way, if you're still playing a 21, 21 style of play in 2024, you're probably losing money, right? Because things are going to keep evolving in some way or another. And so, yeah, for me now, it's, it's again, like I said, figuring out the type of week it is. So two weeks ago, the Gardner Minshew, Sony Michelle week, I wasn't that worried about having high owned players. You know, I had probably everybody on my roster or, or all but one player on my roster was over 12 to 15% owned. Whereas last week, six players on my roster were under 5% owned. And so every week's different. But for me, on the weeks where things are less predictable, that's weeks where I really want to see, okay, what, what is the field clinging to? What is the field scared to miss out on? And I'm not particularly scared to miss out on big games from popular players because over time, that's not going to hurt me. Over time, being willing to miss out on those games is going to make you more money. And so um, yeah. And then also, you know, just having conversations with sharp DFS players, um, watching stuff like this, you know, like always kind of learning new things. Like I remember when I was at Roto Grinders and, and running premium content and there were guys who were, had came into DFS after me and that were technically working under me, but were sharper than me at the time because they were newer, like Eric Crane. Like I learned stuff from working with Eric Crane at Roto Grinders because he was newer to DFS. And so he was bringing fresh eyes. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a constant involvement of strategy and process because you're competing against a field of players. And so to be able to outmaneuver them is always going to be a little bit different. 
Yeah. So I'm curious, kind of piggybacking on that, you know, one thing we we talk about a lot around here, we joke around about, you know, who's getting steamed. I, I, I did a tweet for a while of, uh, you know, this is the sneaky GPP play that's no longer sneaky. And we've had some interesting situations this year too. Uh, an example from last week where it was like CD Lamb projecting for 7%. Ownership loves CD Lamb at 7%. We flip over the cards and he's 23% and I'm pissed off. I'm like, I, I do not love CD Lamb at 23%. No. Are, are, are you factoring in like, and I'm guessing it's hard if you're not, you know, consuming a ton of content or kind of in your own silo there, but how do you think about steam that kind of leveling game how gpp content can actually affect small field ownership based on who the pivots are is that stuff you're considering at all yes as part of like a little you know sliver in the pie chart i'd say the i've had i can't remember who it was but i had a week like that this year where games kicked off and i was like well i lost today (laughs) because i was rostering this guy specifically because nobody was on him and or this like stack because nobody was on it. And I don't want this stack at, at high owner. This is this is pointless, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's there's also certain patterns that like last week, okay. So like last week, I checked the Lamar Jackson ownership projections probably 15 times <laughs> because A, I didn't want to play that stack if it's gonna be five percent owned. But B, I'm like, okay, is this really is he really gonna be like under two, 3% owned. He was, I think under 3% owned in large field play and then uh, like 1.3% owned in the game changer. And so there's certain things though, like that one wasn't totally clear to me because I don't have a sense of, of how the public perception on Lamar has shifted. But other things we can chalk forms in certain ways. And so like a player gets, let's take Michael Pittman, for example, like Michael Pittman, I forget when his first big game was, but I think he had a big game last year on primetime. And then you got the hype, got the hype in the off season. And so like after he had one big game last year, people started rostering him like at a much higher rate than they really should have. And then he was getting hype in the off season. And then, you know, he had a couple big games to where like people just felt really confident in going to Michael Pittman for a really long time. And it took a while for that to wear off. And so there's certain players who, whether because they produced a huge game early in the season or they produced a huge game in prime time, or they produced a, a game that was big enough that they were only 5% owned, but you really noticed that they had it because you didn't have them, you didn't have a shot that week, um, or a guy who produced a huge game when he's highly owned. The, those guys become what I call DFS darlings. And so those yeah. are the types of plays that you just know that that guy, if it, if it projects at 12%, it's probably going to go up from there. Whereas there are other guys who, and this is why, you know, it's funny, Blender, Blender has said that he doesn't do work throughout the week, but he listens to podcasts, like 10, 15, 20 hours worth of, of podcasts and like popular podcasts to hear who's being talked about and to understand what's fragile and what's anti-fragile in, in the chalk projections and the ownership projections. Cubs fan does the same thing. It's just like hours and hours of podcast listening to get a sense of which of this chalk is actually going to strengthen and which of this chalk is going to weaken for me i don't listen to podcasts so that would feel like work to me but the just getting a sense of like yeah which chalk can actually strengthen throughout the week and which chalk can fall apart and i think that if you're listening to industry chatter if you're paying attention to sharp voices that a lot of people listen to that can help a little bit but i think a lot of it also is just feel and recognizing also right like we're trying to get a path to 200 plus points and it's not always going to be on, or the only path isn't always going to be through this player. So even just saying, look, a guy's 10, 12% owned, maybe he's going to go a lot higher. Maybe he's going to go a little bit lower, but if I'm not in love with him, what's the alternate path? Or if I play him, what's the unique way to play him? A lot of times we'll see, we've seen a lot this year, right? Like two or three Rams receivers projecting for high ownership, but Stafford's at one or 2%. And so instead of just playing, cup you know play cup plus van jefferson plus stafford and now you've lowered your combinatorial ownership and if it actually hits if the story you're telling with the cup roster hits then probably this entire story is hitting anyway so you might as well take advantage of all the points um but yeah i think a lot of it at this point uh, i'm interested to get your thoughts on this but it's like it's a lot of little edges at this point in dfs right like there's not a ton of huge edges left so you just pile up as many little edges as you can and then let that play out for you over time 
Yeah. And I, I think too, you know, kind of what my process, I, I do hand build my lineups, but I also, uh, in my personal spreadsheet, I will type the lineups in and see what my projected ceiling is. And I'll see what my projected ownership is as kind of like a secondary check. And then I'll compare that to the optimal lineup for projected ceiling, just to kind of give myself, am I sacrificing a ton of projected points? Sometimes I'll hand build a lineup and I've just realized I've galaxy brained it too much and I'm sacrificing 40 points off the optimal. And I'm like, all right, this is probably too, too out there. I'm curious, do you have any checks on that with once you've kind of hand built a, a lineup you like, or are you still willing to kind of trust your gut, trust that the salary cap itself is ensuring that you're getting in enough projected points? Man, there's like three pieces to unpack from that because salary cap, DraftKings pricing is super efficient. It and is. I think that's worth paying attention to as well. If, if a, and that's another strategy point, right? If, if DraftKings pricing is super efficient, two players are priced about the same and one guy is super popular, you can almost just trust that and say, well, over time, the guy who's way less popular is going to make you more money if he's, if he's five, six, seven times less popular than the other guy. Uh, every once in a while I'll pop my, like a roster of mine into fantasy labs just to get a sense of what the projection is projected ownership is. Um, but a lot of what I do is I want to go through the scenarios in my head. I want to project the points in my head. So one example is last week, Taysom Hill, Alvin Kamara. So here's a question. Can you play them together? They're both going to be popular. Here's one way to differentiate, play them together. So run through the scenario of, we know that the Saints are probably going to dominate the Jets. We know that Taysom Hill is dealing with mallet finger or whatever that is. We know what he looked like throwing the ball the week before. He's probably going to look a little bit better, but passing probably isn't the main way they're going to try to win this game. And the Jets are probably going to struggle. Zach Wilson's under center. So they're probably and they're, they're missing Elijah Moore. They're missing Corey Davis. So the Saints are probably going to be in control of this game. They're probably going to have a run-focused game plan. So then – you know, the most passing yards you're really giving Taysom Hill, if you're thinking through reasonable scenarios, is like 175, 200 passing yards. So then you're like, okay, well, how much of that can Camaro really get, right? Like three catches for 30, four catches for 40. Obviously, there's outlier things that can happen. But so then you start kind of working through that. And it's like, okay, well, how many total yards can Camara and Taysom Hill combine for on the ground? How many touchdowns can they combine for on the ground? What are the chances of Taysom Hill actually throwing a touchdown to Camara? And what I got to was it's going to be tough for these guys to combine for more than like 47 points. And you needed about 54 just to go 4X salary, which, you know, from like a rudimentary sense keeps you on a 200 point pace. So you needed like at least 54 points from the two of them together. Optimally, you need them to have upside for more than that. You need them to have upside for like 60, 62, 65. And so even just like working through the game in my head, how is this coach going to call this game? How do these teams match up? You see, okay, well, playing them together, A, doesn't work that well. And B, if one of them hits for a 4X game, that probably means the other one isn't. Or not necessarily 4X, right? Taysom Hill only needed about 20 points. But but Taysom Hill getting 20 doesn't win you a tournament. If Taysom Hill gets you 25, 26, 27, that means Kamara's probably getting like 20. So for me, that made – once I put Lamar Jackson on a roster, if Lamar gets – 35 and Taysom gets 27, I'm really not gaining that much in that extra 2K in salary spent because 2K times four is eight points, right? It's like an eight point separation doesn't give me a big edge. So for me, it was like, I put Lamar on. I actually liked Eckler more than Kamara last week, but because I, as soon as I put Lamar on the roster from a strategy standpoint, I'm done trying to predict Eckler versus Kamara. It's just like, okay, if Kamara's hitting, that's hurting Taysom Hill. And my best path to first place is not only Lamar hitting, but Taysom Hill disappointing a little bit. So now I put Kamara on to account for the next step that would help me get to first place. Now I need Kamara to outscore Eckler. So the next step is, do I want Mike Williams? Do I want Josh Palmer? Do I want Jalen Guyton to try to take away points from Austin Eckler? And so a lot of that kind of ends up getting decided for me from there. Once, I, once I'm able to think through one or two games where there's key decision points and really popular players who have a high probability of succeeding because the saints probably weren't going to bomb against the jets. So like Taysom and Kamara are probably combining for, for 40 to 47 somehow. And so it's like, once you recognize that it's tough for them to get way above that, that kind of starts making your decisions for you. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I think the, the best thing, the best step in the process for me, just the way my mind works 
is to just kind of think through the games and say, what's a realistic and reasonable way for this to play out? What's a realistic and reasonable way for these points to accumulate? And so it's kind of like running a projection system in my mind, but also getting a better sense of, of what the ranges are and what that means for strategy across the rest of the slate, which again, it's not that that's smarter than what anybody else is doing. It's just different enough that by doing that every week, I have an edge because I'm doing something that other people aren't doing. And so I have a roster that looks different from what other people's rosters look like. And so on the weeks when things come together for my approach, I end up winning because I'm the only one building with that approach. Yeah. That, Kamara Taysom Hill example is awesome because I certainly will think about, you know, team leverage. All right. Everyone's playing the Bucks passing game, Leonard Fournette leverage spot, or I'll think about positional leverage. Like you said, everyone's playing Eckler. Uh, I'll play Kamara up on the top end around the same price, but that idea of getting both positional and team leverage and kind of going through that decision tree with Taysom Hill and then how that would impact your following stand, I think is a really, really cool way to think about kind of hand building and leverage. And I think I always say build for first place. And it would seem like that's what everybody's doing. But a lot of people really, especially casual players, are just putting players on a roster that they like and not thinking about the story that would get them to first place. So it wasn't that I, I actually liked Hill more than Kamara last week. But if my, my best path to first place once I put Lamar on was for Taysom Hill to disappoint. So I want to then tell that story on the roster. And so it takes away some of the predicting and more just saying, what's the strategy? I mean, the, one of my favorite DFS players is Beef I'm a Jeep. Who doesn't play that often anymore? But used to be at every, like literally every single live final. And you would have conversations with him and he couldn't pronounce any players' names he didn't know anything about any of the players or any of the teams, but he was a national board game champion. And so he's just thinking strategy. And so when you can kind of click over to uh, just like enough of that mindset to kind of think through the strategy of getting to first place, then you can kind of find some of these cool things. And again, like I said, like what I, what, the way I do things isn't better than the way other people do things. It's just different. And so finding something that works for like an individual player's mind and it makes sense to them and it's different that's like a huge part of, of things in DFS in my mind. Yeah, for sure. That I, I love how you, uh, how you think about those things. It sounds like even from your lineup building process, um, that I'm just guessing you have a much smaller lot of lineups. If you're putting this much kind of thought and decision tree kind of exercises into this, uh, uh, I'm curious how, how many lineups are you hand building for a regular main slate? Last the last month or so one. Wow. Okay. But uh, when I started in DFS, I was primarily single entry. And then I would occasionally do like a 30, 40 roster type of week. And then with once I started OWS, so the first couple of years on OWS, I was really the only content provider. So we have like 20 people involved in the site now, but initially it was just me. And so I wanted to be doing more than just focusing on single entry play because most subscribers are at least focused on three to five rosters, 10, 12, 15 rosters. So 2019, I explored what I call mini multi-entry, which is playing a mass multi-entry tournament where other people are putting in 150 lineups and you're going to put in 10, 15, 20, something like that. And what's the strategy for that? So 2019, I spent 10 or 12 weeks building like around 20 rosters. Um, and my what I wanted to do was say, I took the wildcat and I said, if you were trying to win the wildcat with under 20 rosters, right, what would be the approach and how do you build that way? And that was kind of a fun discussion. And, and this was totally random because we understand how math and numbers work. Uh, but I ended up like seven weeks in picking up a wildcat win off of talking through this strategy, which again, based on the way numbers work out, it could have been five years. It could have been seven weeks, but just putting together like a sharp strategy to say, how do you build a bunch of rosters so they work together as one what I, what I call a roster block so it's like the week that i won it was a jaguars titans week and leonard fournette had a, a huge game like a 36 point game or something like that but the reason i had leonard fournette was because i really liked the jags receivers that week and on seven of my rosters i was kind of mixing and matching jags receivers which then sort of forced me to say okay now i'm going to dedicate four rosters to leonard fournette in case 
this game goes a different way than I'm expecting and Leonard Fournette gets all the points. And so um, it's a totally, for me, that mini multi-entry is like a very different strategy than single entry, limited entry, because in that one, I want to think about how all my rosters work together so that it's like pushing one of my rosters up to first place. Let me pick games that should have a lot of points and then build around them a bunch of different ways to account for what can happen. Uh, and then, yeah, most of this year I was, I was uh, three to five rosters. And then over the last month, it's been kind of fun and nostalgic to go back to true single entry play. Plus I've got, I've got two kids now, uh, one who's two and a half and one who's 11 months. So it's like things are busier running the site, all that. So in the holidays travel. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been single entry like the last month, which has actually been a lot of fun. Yeah, I already know for this week. I'm I'm generally building, you know, three to four lineups uh, on my own, and then a few more with tilt space. And I this week I've already I've told myself two lineups, Peter. I mean, this week I'm gonna want to be flexible. I'm gonna want to be nimble, and uh, I I do not want to take on more than that. I'm curious, kind of with your style. I'm guessing with how deep your research is that you end up maybe finding a lot of different spots that you like or want to attack. How do you think about? Um, doing that, but also within the, the, uh, the structure of correlation. And I am curious how correlation factors into your style of play. Are, are you a, a, a double stack bring back guy? Most of the time, obviously each week is unique, but I'm just kind of curious how you balance, uh, kind of bigger correlations with your, uh, the other edge seeking that you're doing. Yeah. I'd say most of the time a roster of mine is going to have three players to four players from one game. And then the other four spots then build off of obviously like what's most predictable, but then also what's the strategy from, from there. Um, and so, you know, again, that can kind of like the rest of my roster last week uh, outside of the Camara and Mike Williams thing, it was, uh, I had uh, Antonio Gibson. And then because I had that decision point between Antonio Gibson and Josh Jacobs, I had the chief's defense because if Josh Jacobs is disappointing, then the chief's defense is doing well. And so, the it's kind of like half of my roster ends up being dedicated to that side of strategy. And then half of my roster is dedicated to uh, finding a game to bet on and build around. And sometimes it's like uh, two games that I'll build around, right? Like if you can find an eight K quarterback with a cheap wide receiver who you think can do well, let's say it's early in the season and you think Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley can do well, but you don't need Josh Allen because there's this 5,200 quarterback you really like in this other stack, right? Like I might have a, a bills two wide receiver plus a bring back plus like four players from this other game. If I can put things together that way, but, um, but yeah, basically like starting point for me is typically trying to find what game I want to build around. And then also from there, what players do I like the most, but like you said, every week's different. So sometimes it's, it's a stack with no bring back, you know, uh, quarterback, two pass catchers, like let's take the Bucks, who are going to stay aggressive deep into games. You could take Brady and two pass catchers and no bring back. Or sometimes, I guess it's not a great example because you can't run on the Bucks either. So somebody's going to get points through the air. But uh, you can find those ones. Or sometimes it's um, like last week, an interesting one I could have done was Lamar plus Hollywood plus Donovan Peoples-Jones and Austin Hooper and, and swap from Mark Andrews down to Austin Hooper. And then I could have gone Antonio Gibson up to Austin Eckler. And so you get like a quarterback and, and a pairing, but two bringbacks. But yeah, I, if I can get four players from a game, I'm always going to be happy because I want to find the game that, that blows up, like the had to have it game. And some weeks I look across the board and it's like, like, like what I was talking about with the Bills and Bucks, right? Tough for that game to blow up. Sometimes I look across the board and there's really no games that can blow up. And so then I stack less than the field, figuring that that's the edge, right? Like if everybody is going to, most of my, I always think about who I'm competing against for first place. So if most of my sharpest competition is kind of auto, like let's take Osimo, right? He's a math genius. He plays all the sports, but he's not getting in there and, and saying all the stuff that I'm saying about, okay, this team and th this thing could play out this way. And so for him on a week where I see, Hey, there might not be an optimal double stack and bring back. You look at his roster, it's still probably going to have a double stack and bring back. So if I can say, all right, my sharpest competition is still going to do this. Maybe I can outmaneuver them by picking a little bit more one-offs or correlating in different ways. And um, so there's also a strategy element there of, of outmaneuvering the field to try to get to first place.
Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, as I kind of told people and, and told Jay, I'm here, uh, I didn't want to talk too much about this slate just because it's such a mess and we're going to have to do most of the heavy lifting for that on Sunday morning once we get the rest of those Schefter bombs and see which COVID guys are in or out. But just as like a thought experiment, I am curious how you approach a slate like this. I did run some optimal lineups just before we went in and it's like all Jags and Rams um, showing up in all these lineups. And I'm just curious, say, say that were to hold, you know, from a situation like that, would you be, all right, I'm just Xing those guys out. The field's getting too confident on the best chalk plays. Would you then maybe see like, Oh, let me see if I can find the leverage spots within that game. Higby's going to be played less than Van Jefferson, um, or LaVisca is going to be played less than Marvin Jones or whatever that would be. I'm curious kind of how you're approaching a slate that is, that is like this. You tell me how, how <laughs> approaching a slate like this. Um, yeah, it, it's something like so. Something like like let's say James Robinson ends up being forty percent owned this week because Urban Meyer's gone and James Robinson's I think fifty four hundred and they're playing the Texans and the narrative's going to be that he's going to get all this work. Daryl Bevel's made it sound like that, and then you have to think, well, what other fifty four hundred running back is going to outscore this guy? Um, do I just eat the chalk? You know, a lot of times you have to have some chalk to get the first place. So I might just say it'll, it'll be a balance of like, Hey, how sharp is this? Um, how robust is this? And let me take this chalk. Like Antonio Gibson failed last week, but if I'm, I, I didn't even like the matchup, right? The matchup was awful, but if you have a chance for 30 touches at running back, I'm such a volume guy. It's tough to pass that up. And so there's certain things like that where I'll just be like, okay, I'll take this guy. But then if it's something like Van Jefferson, this is an example you used. Well, that's a little bit more fragile because there's just so many different things that can happen that can lead to Van Jefferson not having the type of game people expect him to have. So yeah, for me, this week is going to be a lot of, a lot of waiting until Sunday morning and assessing what I think the field is going to do and just seeing what's the clearest path to first place from there. But in terms of, of like those types of decisions, it's always for me going to be how predictable is this? Is it predictable enough that I want to be on chalk or do I want to just say, because even, even I'm not worried about missing out on a good score. Like if Van Jefferson puts up 20 points and I don't have him, I don't care. I can get those points somewhere else. The only thing I'm worried about is him putting up like 30 to 32 or 35 and just burying me for not having him. So I'll always assess what's the chance of this guy burying me. And usually the chances of that happening are pretty low. And if a guy is like 20, 25% owned, the chances are way below the ownership. And so it's just an easy decision for me to say, all right, let me move off it. And then this stuff's hard too. And I think for a lot of DFS players in NFL, where you have to wait a week between slates, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to take not the best play. I'm going to take not the guy that everybody else is talking about. Like that, that's hard if you have to wait a week because if it fails, you got to wait another week to come back around and try it again. But the, I think the more you do it, and especially if you can play daily sports, the more practice you get with it, then the more it's just like, okay, well, over time, this makes me money. And so I'll do what makes me money over time. Yeah. You mentioned that, and it, especially if you're playing, you know, one lineup, um, a week and you're only getting, you know, 17, maybe 18 good slates over the course of the year. And, and knowing like you could be making optimal decisions every single week, getting in all the right leverage plays and still not, you know, actually see a huge return on your investment just because of variance and, and how stuff works out. How do you handle that from kind of like the mental aspect? And I'm sure your subs go through that a lot. We've had some conversations in our discord in the past couple of weeks, guys feeling beaten down. Hey, I'm making the smart leverage plays. I like how my lineups are going, but I'm not getting the results. You mentioned that Lamar Jackson play, you know, one out of every 80 slates, you know, or it happening more than that. How do you kind of think about your DFS play on a longer term horizon and, and not get beaten down with the losing weeks? So I, I've, I've gone, I talked about this recently, but I had multiple stretches in MLB where I went over three weeks without having a, a profitable GPP slate. And you think about that in context of NFL, that's over a full season. Um, Bales has talked about, the, maybe it was 2016, he had this huge opening day in MLB and then didn't have a profitable MLB slate for over two months after that. And so I think part of it is you have to understand that that's, that's the way things work out. Part of it is 
intending to get your emotions under control. And those things take time. Like I have at, at uh, we moved out of a house a few years ago that had a, a hole in the wall in my office from like a bad MLB stretch, you know, where I, <laughs> I didn't think I'd punch the wall at Harvard. Just like, God, what the, and you know, and then you're like, well, now I got to fix that as well. Um, but, oh, if you're kind of intending to solve that over time, it happens in my opinion, because at this point I don't even, I don't sweat games. I rarely watch games on Sunday because I usually watch games on Monday, Tuesday, and that's more efficient, you know, no commercials or you can switch the all 22 if you want. And so for me, it's kind of like, uh, I'll watch the Patriots game or not watch football on Sundays and usually check at the end of the day to see how I did. It also helps. Like, I think a lot of what people on the outside probably don't realize is a lot of what would be called professional DFS players, including like people who don't run a content site where they're making some other money from that. A lot of professional DFS players, they're professional DFS players because they binked a big win or several big wins. And then they were smart with that money. And so they're making money on other things as well, whether it's investments or crypto or whatever it is. And so, you know, you, you pick up a 200 K win rather than putting all that 200 K back into the bankroll, you, start making passive income with that. And then it kind of makes you less worried about the short-term swings on a DFS slate because you know that the way you're playing is going to make you money here. And you know that you're making money in other places and that helps as well. And I think that even like the people who are like, man, I want to have a big win to get out of my job or whatever it might be like, maybe take a run at DFS more full time. The mindset still should be that big win just buys a little bit more freedom, a little bit more space, a little bit more financial flexibility and kind of use that thinking as well, because I'll tell you what, I have the people in this industry are the smartest people I've ever come across. Like working with Hefe, with Levitan, with Bales, with Brandon Adams, with Cubs fan, with Cal Spears, like these people are like gigabrain people. And so if you spend time in this industry, uh, Dink tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago about the DFS not only helps you in DFS, but in all areas of life. And I had been talking about that maybe the, the across like the month before that tweet, just saying like, there's so much you learn in DFS that can help you in all areas of life. And so I think that shifting the mindset away from like, this has to be my slate to what, what am I learning this week? And I know that the way I'm playing is going to make me money over time. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate, these things take time to develop like that, emotional uh, fortitude, I guess. But if you're kind of intending to and trying to look at things through a specific lens over time, that builds up to where you do start to kind of transform other areas of your life through your connection to DFS and through all the people you get to hear and, and learn from and listen to and all that. Yeah, no, that is, uh, I think that's awesome advice. And it is this idea too, of when you, like you were talking about with thinking about GF, uh, uh, DFS is a game and, and learning how to play games and those concepts can be applied to so many other aspects of life. I don't want to keep you too much longer here, but I did just want to tag on this because Dane brought this up in the chat as far as, you know, if you're sweating the games on a Sunday, how are you approaching late swap? Um, because that's been a big part of my game this year for single entry in three max. I'm sure it's something you're considering, but how do you balance this? Uh, I'm not watching a ton of the games, but I also want to make sure my lineups are in a position to win if I'm, you know, say behind early. Yeah. I'll check in about 20 minutes before the first late kickoff game, just to kind of get a sense of what's going on and if there is anything. And optimally, I want to already have my understanding of, of what that's going to look like like what those pivots are going to be and what my options are on the late slate. So most weeks this year, I've had three or fewer, four or fewer players in those late games. And a lot of times maybe two players in those late games. So the flexibility is pretty limited, but especially on the rosters where I have five or six players going late, I want to have a sense before games kick off, before the early games kick off of what I will be looking to do. And like, what are the different ways that I can, combine the salary down here if I want to make changes. But, um, but yeah, it's, if I'm, if I'm totally out of the running, then it's, that's the time where you're like, all right, well, let's get off of whoever might have ownership and do something different. But also a lot of times what, what I'm doing with a roster, the story I'm telling with a roster, I'm going to have something totally different in the late games anyway. And if I'm like ahead of the field, I don't want to overrate my chances of staying ahead of the field because again, first place is all that matters. So 
Uh, I don't make a ton of late swaps, but I do check in to see, okay, is this a place where, where it makes sense to do so? No, that makes sense. Um, all right. This has been awesome. I feel like I could talk to you for a couple more hours, but we are going to reel it in here so you can uh, get back to work and uh, get ready for this week 15 slate. But I want to give you a chance. I know a lot of people, uh, or at least they should come away from this pretty intrigued with what you're doing over at one week season. Do you have any kind of late season specials, anything like that? If uh, people want to check it out. Yeah, we do have a, we'll probably actually roll out. There's only four weeks left in the season. We'll probably roll out another something extra down the stretch but um we also have our our main membership is a 12-month membership so if you picked up week 15 this year it would last through week 15 next year um but yeah it's uh, and we also have a membership level called ows free that's totally free and has access to all of our game breakdowns everything except we have like the game breakdown and then the dfs interpretation and the way we do the game breakdowns is is how each team will try to win and what's the likeliest game flow which is really cool for dfs because that's kind of how we should be thinking through the games is how each team is going to attack each other and what the likeliest game flow is. And so, yeah, check out oneweekseason.com. I'll also say this, it's not for everybody. It's genuinely not like everybody's mind works differently, but what's cool about that is because we don't try to appeal to everybody, the people who our site is for, they tend to really love it. And so um, check out OWS free. It's on oneweekseason.com and see if the site's for you. And again, we're mostly focused on we with sleep breakdown and strategy, but also a lot of training is, is a lot of what we're focused on so that people can kind of understand this is what DFS is. It's not about picking players. It's about playing this game, the strategy game. And I think that that can really help people shift their their prospects and their long term ROI in playing DFS. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. That's the shift that I've, you know, made in the past couple of years. From I remember the first time I did my bankroll challenge show on on Roto Grinders, and I I hadn't even gone down this rabbit hole. I was still, you know, a season long fantasy guy trying to pick my favorite players, and boy, was it a disaster. So yeah, once you go down this rabbit hole, um, you will be much better off. And it sounds like one week season is an awesome place to do that. JM to win. Follow him on Twitter. Very much uh, appreciate you coming by today. Uh, a couple other plugs for me. I'm gonna be live here. Again, in 10 minutes uh, with Mike Zakarian from Team Hold, we're going to go through the owners club uh, for the week 15 contest uh, strategy there. I'll be back at 2.30 for splash play with Chris Spaggs. And then, of course, we'll be back uh, Sunday morning at uh, 10.30 a.m. Someone already suggested to push my show uh, this week to go past when inactives are released at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, which is probably a good idea. So maybe we'll push the show back a bit. I hope you guys all have a great weekend. Uh, appreciate you guys hanging out in the chat today. For JM, I'm Pete. We'll see you guys next time.